You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. book of Acts, chapter 1. And I invite you to follow along with me as we read. I'm going to begin at verse 4, and we're going to read through the end of verse 11 of Acts, chapter 1. Beginning at verse 4, Dr. Luke writes, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." My earliest memory from my childhood is also one of the clearest memories that I have. I was three and a half years old, and my father had requested an opportunity to talk to me privately while my mom stood on the porch of the house. And I remember this clearly. And my father led me out to the curb next to his car, and we walked around to the other side of the car, to the driver's side, and the car was running, and he opened the door, And he knelt down beside the car and he handed me this little leather pouch. It was folded and it was about as big as a 50 cent piece. And you open it up and inside was a picture of a cross with a a crown of thorns on top and a bleeding heart. And I think that there was a a Bible verse on the top half of it and this thing closed, closed down and then tied with these little leather strings at the bottom of it. My father came from a strongly Catholic family. And he knelt down and he handed this to me and he explained to me how much he loved me, but how he was not going to be able to live with me anymore or my mom or my sister, but that he was leaving and he was going to go live somewhere else, but he promised me that he would see me regularly and he would come again and just because he wasn't going to be living with me was not going to mean that we were not going to be spending all kinds of time together. And he explained this to me and I remember as a child giving him a hug and telling my dad that I loved him. And then I looked over and my mom was still standing on the porch of the house and I made my way back up to the porch and my dad got in his car and drove away. Then I saw my dad again when I was eight years old. That was the next, next recollection of seeing my father that I have. Isn't it true that a promise is only as good as the person who makes it? Isn't that true? You and I live in a world of broken promises. It's election season. And it seems that our 
representatives and those who are running for office are going to be promising us the world, the moon, and everything all the way to Mars. And everything beyond that. We are going to be promised the most outrageous and outlandish of things, most of which will never come to pass. And it seems that the candidate who can promise the most will garner the most votes. The candidate who is able to guarantee us the most from the treasury will get the most votes and get into office. And so it's a race not to, not to promote some sort of, of um, vision for America and our place in the world. It becomes a race to see who can guarantee us the most. And yet all of those promises will be broken. Most of them anyway. And the one promise they will keep is that they will dispense money like a drunken sailor from the public treasury. But a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. If I give you, if I give you a promise that I will give you a million dollars, is that promise any good? It's not, is it? Not because my intentions are bad. Believe me, if I had a million dollars, I would give it to you. My intentions may be good, my motives may be pure, but if I promise you a million dollars, it's, the promise is no good. Why? Because I don't have a million dollars. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't be meeting in this gym. I don't have a million dollars. Now, if Bill Gates promises you a million dollars, all things being equal, you can go to the bank on that, can't you? Why? Because does Bill Gates lack the resources, the power, the ability, or the wherewithal to fulfill his promise? doesn't lack any of that, does he? I do. I lack the ability, the resources, the power, the wherewithal to fulfill my promise to you that I would give you a million dollars. Bill Gates doesn't. Now listen, when the Lord gives us a promise, we can go to the bank on it because He has all of the resources, all of the power, all of the ability, all of the wherewithal to fulfill everything that He has promised to us. What God determines to do, He does. There is nothing that can stay His hand. There is nothing man can do to thwart His plan. When God purposes something, He accomplishes that which He purposes 100% of the time because He is the Sovereign of the universe. So what God wills to do, He does. On the earth and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can thwart His hand or stay His hand or say to Him, what hast thou done? Nobody can do that. Because what God promises, He accomplishes. Now the disciples had a little scene of their own in their life where somebody was leaving them. And He took them privately away from the rest, just the eleven of them, out to a mount called Olivet. And with those disciples, He had a little one-on-one time and told them He was going to be leaving and He made them a couple of promises. And they're promises that we can go to the bank on because of who made them. And it is the scene of the ascension of our Lord where He is taken up from earth and He ascends physically, visibly, out of the sight of the apostles and they are looking on. And really the ascension or the whole narrative is not given to us to make a point in itself. Really it becomes the backdrop or the background for two important promises that are given to the apostles and thus to us. So the ascension becomes this this scene, this a sphere in which the Lord makes two promises to His apostles. And they're promises that He has kept, and they are promises that He will keep. 
And so we're going to look at those two promises. The first one is in verses 4 through 8. The first thing is that the apostles are promised before the Lord leaves. The apostles are promised the power and the presence of the Spirit. Look at verse 4. Gathering them together, He, that is Jesus, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. After His resurrection, you'll remember we saw up in verses 1 through 3 how the Lord for a period of 40 days had been appearing to the apostles, teaching them the things concerning the kingdom and the things concerning Himself. And He, after He had suffered, presented Himself alive with many infallible proofs or convincing proofs to the apostles. And this has been going on for 40 days in and around Jerusalem as they have stayed there. And now, ten days after, or 40 days after the uh, resurrection of our Lord, after this 40-day period, there's one final appearance that He's making. It's just to the eleven. And He leads them out to the mountain just for some private time with just them. That is why He says in verse 4, gathering them, that is the them of the apostles back in verse 3 that He mentioned, the eleven. He has gathered them together. And Luke tells us it was out toward Bethany on the Mount of Olivet. He gathered them together on the Mount of Olives. And He said to them, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He gives them a command not to leave Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what it was that the Lord saw in the disciples in their readiness and willingness to leave. But He specifically commands them not to leave Jerusalem. I believe the reason He does that is so that they would stay there rather than disperse and go to their hometowns, their respective hometowns, wherever that might be. Uh, Peter had already decided to go back and go fishing. Others had already left Jerusalem and come back. They had gone to Emmaus. And here the Lord says that they are to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for that which the Father had promised. Jerusalem was going to become the central focus of the early church. Everything was going to revolve around that. James and John and Peter would all be stationed out of Jerusalem. And in those early years before the the church's mission began to expand beyond Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the heartbeat of it. It was the center of it. But it was also where all of the events in chapter 2 were going to unfold. That day of Pentecost where they're waiting and the rushing wind and the tongues of fire and and they speak in tongues and 3,000 people get saved and this birth of the church is about to become a very visible, very physical, very public thing. And the head of the church, those 11 apostles, he says you need to stay here. I don't know if they were going to leave and go somewhere else, but before they could go back to their hometowns and witness, before they could move out from Jerusalem, they had to have something. And it's what Jesus calls the promise which the Father had promised. And then Jesus reminds them, which He said, you have heard from Me. Verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the promise of the Father. And the disciples were familiar with this because early on they heard John the Baptist say, as for Me, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who is greater than I am, and I'm not, un- I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that refers to two things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes to birth the church and basically indwell believers individually and the church as an entity corporately. The baptism with fire is, of course, Christ's second coming, and that's a baptism of judgment. The baptism of the Spirit here is speaking of the day of Pentecost, which was going to happen in ten days. That's why Jesus said it's not many days from now. 
And this was what was promised by the Father. And we read some of those scripture scriptures where Jesus promised the coming of the Spirit in John 16. John 7 verse 39 says that Jesus spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Before the Spirit of God could come and indwell the church, something else had to happen. Christ had to be glorified. Now, He has been resurrected, but there is still something that has to happen, and that is He must ascend, and He must sit down at the right hand of His Father in glory, and when that happens, then the Father will send that which He had promised, which was the Spirit of God. John chapter 14, I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and He will give you another Helper, and He may be with you forever. John 14, 26, the Helper whom the Holy Spirit will send, or whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. That was the promise of the Spirit. So they understand what Jesus is referring to because He's mentioned it several times before. And they also understand it from Old Testament prophecy because they had this expectation from the Old Testament prophets that when the kingdom would be established, there would be an outpouring of the Spirit of God amongst the people of God. And that this great outpouring of the Spirit, which happens in conjunction with the establishment of the kingdom, this would manifest itself in all of these different ways and it would be, it would be the chief testimony that Christ was ruling and that the Messiah was reigning in the kingdom. And the Spirit of God would then make that rule and that reign very real to all people. That was what the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. The establishment of the Messianic kingdom, the Messiah will reign, the Spirit will be poured out, we will have this time of peace and justice and truth and righteousness. And that's what they looked forward to. And they had that expectation. Which means that their question in verse 6 makes a little bit of sense. Look what they ask Him. Lord, is it at this time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that seems like a bad question. Because up in verse 3 we said that for 40 days Jesus has been teaching them the things concerning the kingdom. It doesn't seem that they understand it. So it seems like it's a bad question, and that is because it is. It is a bad question. I agree with John Calvin who said there are as many errors in that question as there are words. It's full of errors. And it betrays all kinds of misunderstanding regarding the kingdom. But I don't want to be too hard on the disciples because I've got to spend eternity with them. And I don't want to spend eternity explaining to them why I was so hard on them. The, the, the question somewhat follows what Jesus has said. They understand from the Old Testament that when the kingdom was established, the Spirit would be given. And now Jesus has just said, the Spirit is coming not many days from now. So their question is somewhat logical. Does that mean that at this time then, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And in that question is this little glimmer of hope. The last flicker of an expectation the disciples had. And do you know what the expectation was? The expectation was that Jesus was going to set up His kingdom and that they were going to have positions of power and influence in this earthly kingdom. That's what they are expecting. Back in Matthew chapter 20, there's this little incident where James, James and John, sons of Zebedee, their mother comes to the Lord sort of privately. And she says to them, he says to her, what can I do for you? What does she say? In your kingdom, will you please grant 
that one of my sons will be able to sit at your right hand, and one of my sons will be able to sit at your left hand. That's what she wanted. She's just a zealous mother trying to pull a few strings, um, get in on the inner circle so she talks to the Lord. I just would like, if nobody's asked you this yet, will you put James on the right and John on the left, or John on the right and James on the left. It doesn't matter to me. Just when in your kingdom, when you set it up, will you put one son in this position of prominence and the other son in this position of prominence? Now Matthew says that this didn't set well with the rest of the disciples. He says that the disciples became indignant over this. Do you know why they became indignant? What did they want? They were expecting number two and number three in the kingdom. What about Judas? He's the treasurer. Yeah, he's been siphoning money off of the top of the treasury, but he's the treasurer. He certainly, if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have a treasury. You've got to have money. If anybody deserves the number two position, it should be Judas. Because he's going to be in charge of all of the money. And then you can see Matthew saying, but I'm the tax collector. And you can't have a treasury without a tax collector. And you can't have a kingdom if you're not going to collect taxes to put into the treasury. So if anybody should have the number two position, it should be me, Matthew. I'm the tax collector. And then you can see Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a patriotic, nationalistic Jew who hated Rome and wanted to overthrow uh, Rome's power through anarchy and set up the kingdom. And you can see Simon saying, but what about me? I would lead the military. I'm the zealot. I'm the one that will overthrow them through military strength. I'll gather some men around me. If anybody should be number two, it should be the person who's in charge of the military. And then there's Peter, who's the chief spokesman for all of the disciples. He speaks for them. Surely he would be secretary of state. If anybody should have the number two position, it would be Peter. Because he's the spokesman. He's the Colin Powell for Jesus in the kingdom. He's the one who's going to be speaking. On, he should be number two. And you can just see all this bickering going on amongst the disciples. Matthew says they were indignant. Jesus had to put all this down and explain to them, it's not about power, it's about service. You guys got the cart ahead of the horse here. Remember John chapter 6 after Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish? John records that the people started to say, this truly is the prophet that's to come into the world. Do you know what he meant by that? This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to set up the kingdom. And then John says that Jesus and the disciples left there immediately because Jesus knew that they were going to try and take Him by force and make Him king. And then you have the incident in Luke chapter 19 where Luke says that Jesus told an entire parable just to to quell this expectation of a kingdom. Luke chapter 19 says that the disciples were expecting the kingdom to happen immediately and to appear immediately. And so Jesus tells them a parable about a master who leaves for a period of time before he comes back in order to teach them the kingdom timing is not now. That's how fever pitch this expectation of a kingdom was. So when Jesus says the Spirit is coming, and the disciples, having grown up under this expectation that the Messiah was going to come, deliver them from Rome, set up His kingdom, and they were going to rule with Him. That's what they're expecting. That's what they're waiting for. And they can't wait. Now Jesus said, not many days, and the Spirit's going to come. And they say, ah. You see, all of their expectations had been dashed with crucifixion. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? After explaining it all to Jesus, they said, and we were hoping that He would be the one to redeem Israel. They were upset. They were let down. All of their kingdom hopes 
had been smashed. All of their kingdom expectations had come crumbling down when the king was crucified and dead. But now, they stand on the Mount of Olives and the king is not dead anymore. He's risen. And so there's this glimmer of hope. Maybe. Maybe now's the time. And so they ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now their question betrays three misunderstandings that they had. First, they misunderstood the timing of the kingdom. Lord, is it at this time? Is it at this time? They were expecting an immediate kingdom. They were expecting something to happen now in their lifetime while they stood there on the Mount of Olives. He's brought them apart by themselves. And so they're wondering, is this it? Do we set up the throne, the kingdom, right now? They misunderstood the timing of the kingdom. Second, they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. Notice that they ask Him, Lord, is it at this time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Restore. What were they thinking in terms of? There had been a time when, as a nation, they had been very powerful, very influential, very wealthy. But not any longer. And so they're looking back to the glory days of David and Solomon when it was a kingdom of power and majesty and honor and influence. And they're asking Him, Lord, is it now that You're going to restore that to our nation? They're expecting a political kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. And so they misunderstand the nature. The third thing they misunderstand is the extent of the kingdom. Notice they say, are you going to restore, is it at this time that You're going to restore the kingdom to what? Israel. They're thinking in terms of nationality. They misunderstand all three of those. The timing of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, the extent of the kingdom. It's all fraught with misunderstanding. You can understand why they ask the question. It makes some sense in light of the events, in the light of their expectations. But they have totally misunderstood it. And so Jesus answers their question in verse 7. Look what He says. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus corrects all three of their misunderstandings with His answer. First, He says to them concerning the timing of the kingdom, it's not for you to know. That's a very polite way of saying what? It's none of your business. That does not concern you, the timing of it. When it happens is none of your concern whatsoever. You should not even be concerned with when it's going to happen. The fact is it will. He doesn't correct their expectation that there will be a kingdom. He just says the timing of it is not for you to know. There are certain things, Jesus says, which the Father by His own authority has fixed and they're not your concern. And he's about ready to give them what is to be their concern. But he wants them to understand that the timing of it is not for them. They're not supposed to understand the timing of it. Let me ask you a question. Are you content with just being ignorant about some things? Do you realize that there's a lot of things that you have to be ignorant of that God has not chosen to reveal to you? My life verse, Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. But those things that He has revealed are for us and for our children that we may obey them. In other words, I'm responsible for all that God has revealed and to obey it. And that's plenty. And you and I don't need to be going prying into the secret things which belong to the Lord. In other words, the Lord's saying, disciples, you need to curb your inquisitiveness and your curiosity. 
and just be content with what we've chosen, I've chosen to reveal to you. There are certain things that the Father has fixed by His own authority. He has not chosen to, to reveal them to you and I. And there's a ton of things. How is it that the Spirit of God can inspire the Word of God, but Paul can write it? How does that work out? Well, we know it's true, but we don't understand how it's true. He hasn't chosen to reveal that to us. How is it that God can be completely sovereign, and yet man can be responsible for his own sin? Both of those things are true. How they're reconciled, I don't know. He has not chosen to reveal that to us. And any time we begin to pry into the secret things that belong to the Lord our God, we dive into error. It's almost blasphemy to try and know those things that He has not chosen to reveal to us for us to know. So He corrects their misunderstanding about the timing of it. It's none of your business. Second thing Jesus does is He he, uh, corrects their misunderstanding regarding the nature of the kingdom. But you will receive power. Now they're thinking in terms of what kind of power? Political power, right? We're going to be number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, number ten, number eleven, and number twelve in the kingdom. That's our position. We are the governing council of the kingdom of the Messiah. They're expecting political power. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you should be my witnesses. It's going to be a spiritual power, not a political power. And Jesus there is correcting their misunderstanding. You don't understand what kind of power you're going to have. It's not political in nature, it's spiritual in nature. And it will be a power not exercised over others, but it will be a power that I will give you, an ability that I will give to you to be my witnesses. It's not a power to be used over others. It's a power to be used for others in witnessing to others. So he corrects their misunderstanding regarding the nature of the kingdom, and then the rest of his answer uh, uh, corrects their misunderstanding regarding the extent of it. You'll be my witnesses where? In Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. They're thinking national. They're thinking Israel. And Jesus corrects it and He says, no, you're going to be my witnesses. And this kingdom and this movement is not going to be limited to Jerusalem. And it's not going to be limited to the nation of Israel. It's going to be an international thing. And this was in fulfillment to all the Old Testament prophets who said that nations, every nation will come to Zion and bow down. They didn't understand how that could be if this was just strictly a national kingdom. Although the king would sit in Jerusalem and rule on the throne of David, and although he would exercise power and he would be Jewish, it would be a kingdom which would overarch all the nations so that all the nations will come to him. And the extent is spread beyond even to the remotest parts of the earth. And you and I, not being Jewish, some of us not having any Jewish ancestry whatsoever, we have are the beneficiaries of that kingdom and of that grace and of that rule and of that Savior because it has gone to the remotest parts of the world. Now that, st- that development from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth would be the equivalent of us saying Kootenai and then Boundary and Bonner County and then even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the scope of it. They're starting out at home in Jerusalem and it's moving to all nations. And thus, Jesus corrects all of their misunderstandings regarding the kingdom. But listen, one thing that He does not correct is their expectation that it will happen. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Now that I've been crucified, now that I have risen again, I'm about to ascend. There's going to be no physical kingdom. There's going to be no literal kingdom. I'm not going to set up my throne. I'm not going to rule on the throne of David. I'm not going to be king. This is all just spiritual. He doesn't say that, does He? There are groups within Christianity who are our brothers in the Lord who say that there is going to be no literal kingdom. That's just 
a metaphor, it's an allegory, it's a symbol for the rule of Christ. Jesus doesn't do that. They're expecting a literal physical kingdom. Jesus doesn't correct them in their expectations. But he does want to make sure that they understand that they've misunderstood the timing of it, the nature of it, and the extent of it. But there will be, there will be a kingdom when he will rule. The apostles before the Lord left, they were promised the power and the presence of the Spirit. When the Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses here, outside of here, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And he gives them an an ever-increasing sphere of ministry and tells them that they are able to do it, but only if they wait in Jerusalem for the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. Then they are given a second promise, and that's in verses 9 through verse 11. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky. Now there's something that happens here. After Jesus has given them this commission, after he has taught them, and I would assume that more is said here than what Luke records, but Luke does record some essential stuff, that after this happens, the Lord is lifted up from them while they're looking on, and he is and he is received into a cloud out of their sight. Now there's something that Luke gives us five times in these verses. Notice what he says. After he had said these things, he is lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, And as they were gazing intently, that's the third reference, into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. Five times Luke makes reference to sight. You have seen Him. They were gazing. He was taken out of their sight while they looked on. Why does Luke mention that five times? Do you figure he's trying to tell us something? This was literal, physical, and visible occurrence. After the Lord had said these things, He was lifted up from them. Mount of Olives, I don't know how close they were to Him, but you can picture the scene. There's 11 of them there. This is the departing. This is His final farewell. And while they're standing there looking on with their very eyes, because Luke wants us to know there were 11 eyewitnesses to this account, the Lord is lifted up from them, and as they're looking up, they see Him enveloped into a cloud. And He disappears from their sight. And there they stand looking. What were they looking for? What are they looking at? What are they expecting to happen? What are they waiting for? But they're standing there, gazing. Maybe they're expecting the cloud to disperse and to see Jesus come down again. Luke doesn't tell us what they're looking for, but he does tell us that their attention is arrested and brought back down to earth by the presence of two men who were not there before. But now there are two men there dressed in white. Luke calls them men because that's exactly how they appeared. They're the uh, the same way that he describes the two angels who were at the tomb on resurrection morning dressed in dazzling garments. And here are two men with the disciples dressed in white. They're gazing into the sky looking for... I don't know what. But while they're looking, there's something that startles them, and it's the presence of two people that they didn't hear coming. They didn't see them coming. 
And they weren't there before they started looking up into the sky. And they're angelic messengers. And the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand staring up into the heavens? Now somebody will object, and so many people do, and say, this never really happened. This couldn't have really happened. I mean, you and I know that heaven is not above the clouds, right? There's no such thing as a heaven up above the clouds. I mean, we, we know that. We've been up beyond the clouds. Luke obviously was writing to a scientifically unenlightened audience. They were not as enlightened scientifically as you and I. And if Luke were writing this today, he certainly wouldn't have said that because this is just an apocryphal, mythical account that Luke was using to communicate to his readers that Jesus was in heaven. It never really happened. And Luke, if he were writing today, wouldn't say that. I think Luke would say that, especially if it really happened. But Luke's not trying to teach us that heaven exists beyond the clouds. There's two reasons why Luke gives us this account. And there are two reasons why the ascension happened the way it did. The first is because this is the only way of depicting a complete removal. For 40 days, Jesus has been appearing and disappearing from His disciples and teaching them. This disappearance is completely different. Before, He just vanished from their sight. What happens now? He's lifted up. This is different than anything else. And He is trying to communicate to them, I'm leaving, and this is the last time I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. So don't stand around on the Mount of Olives expecting another post-resurrection appearance. I'm gone. I'm leaving you. And it's permanent. And Peter understood this, which is why Peter in chapter 1, verse 8 of his epistle, says that though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice. With this ascension, the earthly manifestations of the resurrected Christ have ceased. That's it. We don't see Him. He does not appear to us. We don't see Him in visions. We don't see Him in dreams. We don't stand and shave with Him standing next to us on Sunday mornings. He does not appear to us because He's gone. And this is the only way of depicting a final, complete removal. Second purpose for having this happen was this. It depicted His position of power and glory and honor. The disciples certainly did not think that there was a a heaven on top of the clouds, some city up there. They knew better than that. But this depicts for them the, the position of prominence that our Lord has. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that God has raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. And Ephesians 4 said that Jesus has, He who descended has also ascended far above all the heavens, so that now He fills all things. That's what the Apostle is trying to communicate. That's what Luke is trying to depict for us. This position of power and preeminence and glory that Christ now has. Now He gives them a little rebuke, the angels do. Men of Galilee, why is it that you stand gazing up into the heavens? Kind of a little mild rebuke there. You've just been told what your mission is. Now you're standing around looking up in the sky. What are you expecting to happen? What are you waiting for? You know what he's rebuking? Stargazing. A lot of stargazing going on in churches today. Book after book after book after television program being produced to talk about the coming of the Lord. Christians sitting on their hands, staring up in the sky, waiting for Him to come back. A lot of them are going to be real disappointed that there's no reward when He does come back. Because they haven't done anything. Spent their whole life staring up in the sky, waiting for Him to come back. Now listen, I'm convinced that the Lord is going to return physically for His church. And that we will be raptured. And I'm convinced that that will be followed by a seven-year tribulation period, which will be followed by a 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. And there's some judgments and resurrections that are sprinkled in between there. 
and all of the judgments of the tribulation period. I'm convinced of all of that from Scripture. And I'm convinced that we are always on the very brink of the coming of the Lord. And I'm convinced that those truths should be taught and believed and communicated to people and stood for. But I am also convinced that having known those things and believed those things, that none of us should stand around gazing to the stars waiting for Him to come back. None of us should be preoccupied with the earthly and the physical. And none of us should be overly, sorry, none of us should be preoccupied with the heavenly. Our preoccupation should be here on earth. Our preoccupation should be with the work that He has given to us to do. Instead of standing around gazing at the stars. And that little mild rebuke is also followed by a promise. This Jesus will come again in the same way that you have watched Him go into heaven. It's coming. And His coming is certain. We've been promised that He's coming again. Nearly every book of the New Testament mentions the second coming of the Lord. His first coming, He came to conquer sin and death, and to offer Himself as a sacrifice for sin. His second coming, He will come back and He will execute vengeance on His enemies and He will set up the kingdom that we're waiting for. And we're waiting for that. We're waiting for Him to come. But He will come in the way that we've seen Him go. Daniel said, looking into the night visions, I saw in the clouds one coming who was like the Son of Man. Daniel, thousands of years ago, foresaw the coming of the Lord. Coming in the clouds from the heavens. That is how the coming of Christ will be. Just as we saw Him lifted up from earth to heaven, so we will see Him come back. He will come back from heaven to earth visibly, physically, and the prophet says every eye will see Him and they will mourn for Him whom they have pierced. Because it will be a visible, physical return of Christ. And then Jesus said, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to each man according to his works. And so i got to ask you, in light of those two promises, these two questions. Number one, are you serving in the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in your life? And are you trusting in Him? And the second question is this. Are you looking forward to the return of Christ and serving, expecting Him to come back at any minute? And when the Lord of the harvest comes back, will He find you busy? I certainly don't want to find me sitting on my hands, looking to the heavens, gazing at the stars, and waiting for Him to come back. As the hymn said that we sang right before we closed, there's going to be a day when the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. And that's what we look forward to. When He left, He promised us two things. The presence and the power of the Spirit. And second, that He will come again. And that's what we look forward to. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the promises that You've given to us. And unlike any earthly father or any friend that we have ever had who has broken promises to us or promised us things that have never come to pass. We thank You that we can look to Your Word and see that You have promised us before You left earth. And before our Lord ascended to heaven, He promised us the power and the presence of the Spirit to do Your work. And without Him, we would be hopelessly lost and hopelessly unable to do anything that pleases You. And He also promised us that He'll come again. And I pray, Father, that You would make that coming more and more real to us, that we would live sanctified and holy and set-apart lives in light of the coming of our Lord. We thank You for His precious promise and we look forward to that day when the trump will resound and the dead in Christ will be raised and we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.